of people having enormous tapeworms pulled out of them. Uh-huh. And I'm like, oh, that looks like it would feel so good. <laughs> like, imagine if there was just, if somebody was just like, oh, no, the reason you're fat is there's this huge thing in you and we just pull it out and now you're skinny. Wouldn't that suck, though? Because uh, we've been getting fatter know, after maybe. all these years and we wouldn't... Yeah, but it's, it's not really your fault. You were hungry because of the tapeworm. <laughs> Yeah, but do you really think uh, that you, <laughs> the first time you go and, like, get some, like, awful food to eat, like, just because you like it, you're like, well, I guess I can't blame, no, the, like, I can't blame like, the tapeworm anymore. It's like gastric surgery. You don't want it anymore. Like, you don't, your your body doesn't But do you create. really not want it? It was the worm the whole time, <laughs> is what I'm trying to say. This is about evading personal responsibility. Yeah. <laughs> it was the voices. It was the worm. It was the, the worm, worm requires things. The worm requires triple frappuccinos. I'm Jewish Dave. And this is Bird Road. This is Bird Road. Welcome to a very special episode, everybody. It's so weird. I'm not even sure whether or not I'm the one that should be doing this part. Um, I'm more of a natural leader than you, so it just kind of falls to me usually. Uh, but... This is what we like to call a crossover episode yes. where we're going to be talking about something that um that impacts both of our podcasts. Of course, this is Bird Road that you're listening to, but at the same time, you're also listening to Piecing It Together, which is Jewish Dave. It, well, I'm sorry. I'm piecing it together. He goes by David Rosen. <laughs> very hoity-toity, if you ask me. Well, a lot of my, and, a lot and, of the co-hosts still call me Jewish Dave. So. And it honestly kind of fractures the brand a little bit. It's a little <laughs> fragmentive. And I've been meaning to talk to you about it, about like sort of our, our, our brand standards as as an organization. Um, you're a little out of out of the box, but you think it's okay to be Jewish Dave in today's culture? I don't think I want to live in a culture where it's not okay to be Jewish Dave. <laughs> you know who, you know, there are, uh, there was another group of people who didn't want Dave's to be Jewish. <laughs> Do you know who they were? The Republican Party. The Republican Party. <laughs> the Proud Boys. Cheap, cheap, cheap oh. joke. <laughs> so this is a, uh, oh, by the way, the Proud Boys have started a Miami chapter. Which is hilarious. Our old uh, friend and guest, uh, friend of the pod, um, Jerry Ionelli, got into a little uh, back and forth with uh, some Twitter accounts that apparently are associated with the Miami Proud Boys movement. And my wife made the very astute point that, like, how the hell can those guys exist here? This That's is weird. Miami. Like, this is not Charlottesville. This is not Virginia. Uh, this is a completely different atmosphere and place. And, um, uh, but I still think she she fails to realize the capacity for hatred in the human heart. Ra- racists do love a good challenge. That's what I've always heard. <laughs> so back to my point. This is a crossover episode. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we saw we both saw a movie that has been out, frankly, for a while now. Yeah. So um, for for those of you who are listeners of Bird Road, but maybe not listeners of uh, piecing it together. Uh, Dave, why don't you give a quick synopsis of, of, of what piecing it together is 
and um, what you do on the show, what we're about to do on, on this crossover episode. Sure. Yeah. Well, Piecing It Together is a podcast where we take a look at a new movie and try to figure out what other movies inspired it. And I've had Q on the show a couple times now. Uh, and I, it's always a different co-host um, on all the different episodes. And we're always looking at one new movie. And we end up on like a long journey of a list of movies that we end up on tangents and talking about just all, all kinds of movies. It's not just a straight review show. There's like so many millions of movie review shows out there wanted to do something a little different. And so this way we end up talking about all kinds of fun stuff, different movies, different directors, different genres. Sometimes even it could end up being something in other areas of entertainment or the world. Uh, just anything that may have inspired the movie that we're talking about. Ever since I first started piecing it together, I made like a list of upcoming movies that I wanted to cover on the show. And right from day one, I had written down that I wanted to do Sorry to Bother You with Q. And so even though the movie's already um, a little over a month old now and probably starting to leave theaters, it should still be in some theaters by the time this goes up. Um, but I still wanted to make sure we got to cover it. And then the idea of doing it as a crossover just made so much sense because it is a very political film. Yeah, and that's why we're having it on Bird Road because uh, if you are a listener of Piecing It Together and you don't know what Bird Road is, Bird Road is the other show that Jewish Dave, a.k.a. you know him as David Rosen, I suppose, um, <laughs> that, uh, that, that, that we have on our, on our podcast network. Um, this is a politics show. I mean, it started as like sort of a general interest news commentary show but i mean it has dubbed, it, it, it has um veered pretty hard into politics uh, arena the political arena and we're not like we're 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 steering into that skid we're not afraid of that and we want to do that um this movie was overtly political in a lot of great ways it was probably one of the best um progressive manifestos that's been put out there or, or at least uh w with respect to um the portrayal of the worker or the, or the solidarity amongst workers very class conscious very um you know knowledgeable of, of 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 very like it's timely it's what i'm trying to say i guess it's sure timely. so if you haven't heard of the movie it's starring uh lakeith stanfield who you probably have, have seen on the tv show atlanta he also had the titular line in 2017's get out um he's just one of these guys that's kind of popping up a lot more and uh, you're who you're gonna see a lot of in the future. Um, and the movie is synopsized thusly: In an alternate reality of present-day Oakland, California, telemarketer Cassius Green finds himself in a macabre universe after he discovers a magical key that leads to material glory. As Green's career begins to take off, his friends and co-workers organize a protest against corporate oppression. Cassius soon falls under the spell of Steve Lift a cocaine-snorting CEO who offers him a salary beyond his wildest dreams. And the best part of the movie, actually. Army <laughs> Hammer playing Steve Lift is one of the, a treasure for, the, for, the, uh, for this year's cinema-going crowd. Um, all right, Dave, so how do we start this? Right, We're going to break this movie apart and get into what, it is, what, what it's about. And uh, I guess we want to get into the elements of it, right? This is a very elemental podcast. Sure. What is? Um, well, why don't you start us off uh, as the first, um, the first puzzle piece that that you saw in Sorry to Bother You? Sure. Well, as far as uh, this movie is concerned, I think, and actually, it's interesting that you're having me start because normally I have the guest start. But you know what? This is a crossover episode. Why not? I'll it's, go. It's ahead. a funhouse mirror. Man. Yeah, it's a funhouse mirror. Yeah, anything could happen on this episode. And I just wanted to. Uh, also point out before we really get started, 
um, that I did see this movie uh, opening weekend. So it has been a little while uh, since I've seen it. So a few of the um, uh, specific scenes and things might be a little a little rusty for me. But uh, overall, I have you know my ideas of what I liked and didn't like about the movie. Um, but going into my first puzzle piece, um, and this one is a pretty obvious one, especially for me. My favorite writer in the world is Charlie Kaufman, and I think it's pretty obvious that Boots Riley uh, loves Charlie Kaufman's work as well. Um, there are a lot of directors who have worked with Charlie Kaufman. Well, not a lot, but a few directors that have worked with him in the past. Uh, examples are, of course, Michelle Gondry, Spike Jones, and then Charlie himself. And I think all three of these, um, we could kind of bucket together as one big puzzle piece, um, which is these these kind of mind-bending films that uh, are open to so much interpretation and have so many layers upon layers. Uh, they're visually inventive, especially Michelle Gondry's uh, versions of Charlie Kaufman's scripts. Um, and, you know, one thing, as we'll get through this episode, you'll notice is that I didn't love the movie. I did like it, and I definitely respect it a lot. Um, but it, because it does a lot of really interesting things, and it's certainly trying to be something unique and, and different, um, which I absolutely appreciate. Um, but one thing about these kinds of movies, these movies that the general public would just straight up call weird, is um, one thing that's exciting about them is that they're trying things that don't always necessarily work, but it's exciting that they're trying them and they're actually uh, doing unique and interesting things. And I'm sure you probably agree with me, uh, especially like I know you're a big Michel Gondry fan. Yeah, I'm a big Michel Gondry fan. I even like the stuff that most people don't like. I thought that um, Green Hornet was great. Uh, oh, yeah, me I too. I love the practical effects and the world building that happens in Michel Gondry films. Um, I love the the visual styles of them. I mean, they're they're good. They're good movies. Uh, I was. We were both really young when um, when uh, Eternal Sunshine came out. Um, that's my wife's favorite movie, and it is uh, one one of probably my top three favorite movies of all time. I mean, it's such an amazing movie. I heard a actually a podcast interview um, with uh, Boots Riley, and it's funny that you bring up Charlie Kaufman as your first puzzle piece because he did say that uh, Charlie Kaufman was one. Of, understand, Boots Riley has a long history of um, you know being a sort of a creative force on the West Coast. Yeah, he's a rapper. He was involved in you know the, the entire hip hop industry out there, and he's like a favorite son of Oakland, California, and um, so he had doors open to him during the process of uh, I guess conceiving this movie and one of the people among many people who he did have conversations with about it was charlie kaufman oh, they actually cool. did talk about this movie and um the script was floating around and the story that i recall and i'm only bringing this up because um you, you mentioned charlie kaufman and um the story that i recall is that boots riley said that the script was very raw because he wasn't a screenwriter per se and it made its way around by virtue of sort of the hipness that's attached to his name. Sure. People yeah. were like, oh, that guy wrote a movie script? I want to read it. And and uh, and through this iterative process of meeting a lot of really talented people like Charlie Kaufman and the Coen brothers and, and a lot of people that he sort of bounced up against that had feedback and said, hey, I really hope you can get this made. Maybe you should try this. Maybe you should try that. And so what we saw on the screen was, um, a, I believe, like a first-time screenwriter who got a lot of incredible feedback and information yes. on what had been a very raw script, and no doubt it came through in the finished product. Yeah, 
Well, you know, an, an interesting little side note about uh, what you were just talking about is the fact that this script was written like, God, I think like 10 years ago or something. And it was funny, just like a week or two ago, someone on Twitter uh, posted something about how uh, Sorry to Bother You is such like an amazing, or, or like uh, they said something about how we all thought amazing art would come out of the Donald Trump presidency um, because of the yeah. fighting back and everything. And Boots Riley replied, man, this was written 10 years ago. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Nothing's changed, yeah. you know? <laughs> no, the, that, that, that's true because we might as well get it out there right now as we explain that this movie is a, is, uh, you know, this movie is all about the, the cause of solidarity, solidarity and labor um, fighting against, uh, you know, to, to be, one of the, the the masses kind of fighting against the um, grip of capitalism, and yes. that's what that's what the movie's really about. It's about uh, sort of people banding together. Um, it, it it actually it touches on a lot of issues. It it this movie would be different if it was written right now because it would be about different things. It would like the the race angle would be different if if this movie had been written today. Um, there would be a thousand different storylines that they would change about it. This was funny enough. If he wrote this ten years ago, what he was writing about was a time during the first, um, you know, d during during the o Obama campaign. Yeah. When uh, I think a, a lot of people will, will remember that Barack Obama, the candidate, made a lot of promises to organized labor, and they were promises that he didn't keep. He promised to advocate for card check. He promised to advocate for better collective bargaining rights. None of that happened. It went not only not only did it not happen, it wasn't even on the agenda for the first term. And by the time the second term came around, they were so entrenched in the you know other other fights like with healthcare and with uh, you know all these sort of mini scandals that had arisen around the IRS and Fast and Furious and all this bullshit that nobody was talking about that stuff. Frankly, nobody's talking about it today except right. except <laughs> for. Why is it so fucking prescient? Why is it so smart? Because this movie comes out just a few months after a string of wildcat uh, strikes that hit West Virginia, Kansas, other sort of traditionally Republican states. And I think that's that's incredible. Like, yeah, a script from 10 years ago that basically stayed true to what it was um, didn't change the, the, the plot ended up being so relevant today. But... I think that's a really myopic and stupid thing for somebody to say to be like, oh well, you know, no kidding, no kidding that this this kind of great art is coming out of the Trump era. Yeah, like no, dude, this is not this isn't a, a Trump response. This isn't about that. This is like the characters in in it aren't that they aren't those flavors of conservative progressive. You know, it's not what you know. It doesn't comport to that explanation. Sure, absolutely. So uh, what what would your first puzzle piece be? So my first puzzle piece would actually be um, a, a very a, a movie that tonally and thematically, uh, I'm sorry, a movie that tonally and visually is completely different um, and bears no uh, no tangible similarities to this movie, but does deal with the same themes the same uh the concept of disillusionment the concept of um it professional in a professional environment the concept of <laughs> um being uh why are you laughing you think you know what I'm gonna I, say? I think I know where you're going but I want to hear you say it 
<laughs> no, no, I don't think you. No, you don't. You don't. You probably have, you probably this is something you would never think I would get. I you know would never guess that I was saying. okay. Um, so although I am interested now to know what you thought I was going to say, but uh, th- it, this is this next puzzle piece is something that um puts a couple of main characters at the at the at the center of the story who are grappling with their position and the potential of what their position could be in a corrupted system. Um, it, it's all about uh sort of going along to getting to get along um kind of grinning and bearing it even though you know what you're doing every day is is evil and part of a huge uh horrible corporatocracy that's that's ruining life around the world and the excuses that you tell yourself to continue to keep doing it because of the rewards that you're getting and my puzzle piece is the movie uh michael clayton oh okay that's good so yeah, so I think if you recall, the George Clooney, the title, the titular character in Michael Clayton, was um, a fixer, I suppose. Right, he was somebody who had this incredible talent for, uh, you know, as an investigator to work with the law firm, um, with with the, the 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 firm that he was employed by, to make problems go away. And through the course of the movie. I don't want to ruin Michael Clayton for you or anything like that, but if you haven't seen it, I mean, it's been fucking 11 years, but still, um, <laughs> it's, uh, he sees another, uh, member of a much higher ranking member of the firm, um, start to break down and go through, a you know, um, uh, sort of a, a mental, um, a mental breakdown. And that, into his clear eyes because he's not you know stricken in that way that the that the other character is he starts to sort of second guess what it is he's doing and um you know again i don't want to ruin michael clayton for you but uh that i think an incredible movie by the way if you haven't watched it go watch it that's like a five-star movie it really is a great movie and it's a movie that people liked but not enough people saw it got a lot of rave reviews at the time. It's just, I don't know. People love Clooney, but they just did not show up for it. I think it was maybe too subdued for the the Clooney that people were expecting at that time. Sure. Wasn't he doing like, he was doing Syriana and he had just done Ocean's 12. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, that was, a, it was a different, it was a very different role for him. And then also let's not ever forget the fact that George Clooney only ever plays himself. <laughs> he only ever plays George Clooney. He has zero characters. I would say maybe other than Burn After Reading. Would be yeah. I was going to say maybe Coen Brothers, another, but that's about Coen it. Coen Brothers movies. Yeah. He he play, he puts on a character for for the Coen Brothers, but nobody else. <laughs> What's your next piece, Dave? Um, no, I, I think uh, I think Michael Clayton's a great one, um, and and like we were just saying, a great movie. Um, the reason I was laughing when you were first bringing it up is because of my next puzzle piece, um, which is a a much lower brow version of <laughs> of what you were like starting to set up there. Um okay. But it is office space. Um <laughs> which the yep. uh certainly this movie goes into a lot of uh different themes that are not present in office space, but it the jumping off point does start with the you know the mundanity and pointlessness of office life and just absolutely hating what you do, you know. And uh I, I can, I think it's such a a great cult classic and a movie that I think a lot of people who get into um, like first time filmmaking like this 
are are probably big fans of uh, Mike Judge and his kind of work. Yeah, and it's funny because I might as well just spoil it right now. My next, my next one was Idiocracy. Uh, so I have I, that on my list too. <laughs> it can, it can, you know, again, another Mike Judge movie, another sort of cult classic, and uh, it, 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 it's a movie. I would say, you know, we're, you know, how we're wrong though. This movie is much more hopeful. Sorry to bother you. Is much more hopeful about the about people, about humanity. Yeah, I think that. Office Space and Idiocracy, Silicon Valley today, any go back as far as Beavis and Butthead. Mike Judge, his worldview is very nihilistic. Yes, it, it is, is about it is like expect the very worst out of people and even expecting the worst out of them, prepare to be disappointed because they'll be worse than that. Right. And expect the worst from yourself because you're awful too. Yeah. And the characters who are your stand-ins, the heroes of your stories, are even worse. They're terrible. <laughs> like, like I, so my wife made the point the other day, when we, or I guess it was a few months ago, whenever the end of Silicon Valley happened, which was like, I just don't understand how we're supposed to root for Richard. He's terrible. He's, He's awful. awful. He's the worst He's person. Sort of, it's one of the worst people in the world. And it's like no redeeming characteristics. I think, I think uh, based on what you were just saying there, I think um, Office Space and Idiocracy are kind of where they're at um, when the events of Sorry to Bother You begin. And then there's a hopefulness of people actually coming together and wanting something better. You know, that that uh, happens within Sorry to Bother You. Okay, so uh, for my next one, for my next puzzle piece about this movie, um, I'm going to go with uh, with a movie that at the it came out a few years ago and it was um, pretty well received, but I feel like it just kind of disappeared or dissipated after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it looked like it was going to be the beginning of sort of a movement in, um, in, in filmmaking. It had... Um, uh, visually, it had similar sort of uh, stark uh, tones to it, and um, the characters spoke in very similar sort of clipped and, and uh, clipped and uneven ways. The dialogue was was very sort of rooted and real, while at the same time being a little um, a little ethereal. Like these characters wouldn't be talking this way. This is clearly, you know raising Arizona levels of like of 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 overwritten dialogue but it also sort of hit you hit you uh, in the same way and that movie is um is dope do you remember dope dave yeah absolutely dope was really good so dope had um a lot of the similar sort of interpersonal relationships and a lot of i feel like the a lot of the characters uh, dope happened in LA or southern california the valley i think and um and uh, sorry to bother you. Very famously now has uh, happened in um, uh, takes place in, in Oakland, California. And uh, other than that huge geographic difference, I think you could draw a line between some of the characters in Dope and um, and say that they're sort of grown up, and this is still them in uh, in Sorry to Bother You. Sure. Obviously, Dope is far more rooted in reality. It's it's a it's a drama that there's nothing crazy or insane that happens. There aren't any. Uh, spoiler alerts, guys! Spoiler alerts for, for 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 sorry to bother you, but there are no talking horses or like you know, <laughs> uh, you know mutants or anything like that in in um 
in dope. But uh, do you remember anything about that movie, Dave? And it's so, been a long time. Yeah, no, I, I haven't seen it in a long time. Um, I, I just remember really enjoying it at the time. And, and it, it had like a real, just like a real cool feel to it. Um, it just, it just really, uh, it felt like very raw and very like, um, I'm trying to think of the right word for it other than raw and cool, but, uh, very, very, um, a very realistic look at, at like, you know, that, those kind of characters. So how about you? What's your next one? <clears throat> so my next, uh, puzzle piece would be one that I think uh, most genre fans would pick out immediately, uh, especially with all of the uh, anti-capitalist messages that we um, were discussing a little bit earlier. Um, and that is John Carpenter's They Live, um, which is... I've never seen you know, that. I've never seen it. It's it's a classic like sci-fi horror film. Um, and basically, it, it it's... I mean, he's like, it's about like these aliens and like they're like the ruling class are basically aliens and they've like coded all these secret messages into the world to get people to continue spending money and breeding and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I think, you know, it's very much like one of the great uh, sci-fi movies that deals with an issue, like, like an issue that a lot of people are thinking about, but isn't really represented that much in, in cinema. And that, that being, uh, you know, being uh, capitalism, really, and, and looking at, at the problems with capitalism. And uh, so I, you know, that seems like something that would at least plant the seed, because I'm sure that uh, Boots Riley would have, you know, grown up with, with, with weird, cool sci-fi movies in his head. I think that's interesting, because this is a, this is a, this is a black movie. The majority, the preponderance of the characters are uh, played, are portrayed by black actors. And um, in this movie, which I mean, it's Oakland that stands to reason in, sure. in a lot of parts of Oakland. And um, I think it's interesting that anti-capitalist messaging in the last 20 to 25 years doesn't stand up that well in the black community. Um, there are few groups who are more bought into the concept of capitalism and, and sort of uh, material goods than than um, urban the uh, urban African American community. I mean, sure. they are as red blooded American as you, as you can be in their pursuit of of wealth and their pursuit. Of, obviously, they have huge institutional barriers preventing them from um, from from achieving it that their counterparts in you know white society don't have. But nonetheless, they um, definitely go after the the carrot at the end of the stick with as much gusto, if not more. Um, that's what almost all modern hip-hop had been up up until this like emo movement that happened in the last sure. three or four years all modern <laughs> hip-hop from i would say 1998 advent of bad boy all the way up to 2016 or 2015 was was explicitly materialistic yeah every single bit of of the culture and the value of, of hip-hop with very rare exceptions for like you know the the conscious hip-hop or the uh head hip-hop or whatever um, or like knowledge hip hop, like other than that, those small sort of subgroups, um, it was just, it, it's, it's very materialistic. And I mean, that's a, that's a critique you can make about America writ large. And sure. Americans absolutely. Large. But to see these characters who are, like I said, overwhelmingly, you know, played by African Americans in the cast kind of come to this larger sort of more communal idea of what, 
labor can be, of what working can be, of what um, leading like, you know, verdant lives and, and lives filled with meaning divorced from the pursuit of material goods what that can be like i thought that was really interesting and and um you know they don't lay it on it's not laid on lightly the anti-capitalist messaging in this movie it's it's not done with nuance it's done brilliantly i think i think it's done very cool in a very cool way but it's it's not it's not done with a with a feather duster it's done with a fucking jackhammer (laughs) yeah right yeah well i i think also it's a uh it's cool to see it coming out of the hip hop community because it's, um, it's very much a, uh, a reaction to all these years of hip hop being such a materialistic thing. And so I I think, I think it's like, it's the right, um, it's, it's the right world to use to skewer capitalism, I think. So my next one is a, uh, is more specific to the second act um the entire second act of the movie occurs in a party and uh the that party is basically the part that you remember from the movie eyes wide shut and i thought that the entire <laughs> second act uh party where we meet army hammer's character who is a um a corrupt billionaire who's uh perpetrating horrible crimes against humanity in the um pursuit of more capital he holds this enormous soiree at his at his uh palatial estate he's fucking hilarious he's so good <laughs> in this part he should be this guy like that's who he should be um like he's you know what he is is he's the character he's the two characters from a social network when they stay the line uh <laughs> with the guy I'm, I'm paraphrasing here but i remember the the character goes uh, you think I'm afraid of him? I'm six foot four, two hundred twenty pounds, and there's two of me. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's who he is in this movie. He plays that yeah. character, and I love it. He plays it so well. We immediately meet him just doing the the most insane line of cocaine that's ever been filmed. <laughs> I, it's insane. Uh, and um, so this depraved, uh, very decadent over-the-top, showy party. Uh, I, I couldn't help but re- but think, be reminded of Eyes Wide Shut. Did you ever see Eyes Wide Shut, Dave? Uh, a million years ago, but yes, I did. It's, a, uh, it's, it's an interesting movie, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what? Before I go on to my next puzzle piece, there's one thing I wanted to kind of double back on because um, I, I forgot to mention it earlier, uh, and, and that's when we were talking about Idiocracy. Um I think another thing that uh, reminds me a lot of Idiocracy is the entertainment choices um, that oh, these yeah. people sure. in the future, um, you know, if you remember Ow My Balls from Idiocracy, right. that seems like it would be right there on the same channel as what was, uh, do you remember what the, the show was they were watching? You got hit like, the motherfucking face. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> something like that i don't remember the exact yeah name, but it, it was basically it was, that though yeah <laughs> definitely people yeah, was, people were watching some of the dumbest imaginable shit which is i think uh you know pretty good prediction for, for where things are going um there was great details <laughs> in this movie man like yeah. the uh the um cassius's car having uh, above the windshield having a uh and like these are things that you only know about if you were poor. 
And if you if you spent like significant parts of your adulthood being like like shit ass broke poor, um, <laughs> the 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 feeling, the anxiety that Cassius has of like being on the verge of being kicked out, a car that doesn't work, and not being able to get where he's going, having to like lie to get a job, like all those things that he has to go through. And I thought that it was perfectly distilled in the car that he drives, which is a heap. Um, and it has repo marking on on the top right. And mm-hmm. you wouldn't know what those numbers are unless your car has ever been repossessed. And like, <laughs> and you had to go get it back. Like it, you have to know that. And that's such a mindful detail, you know, that right. kind of stuff to like to know, oh, I guess Cassius has had his car repossessed in the in the in the recent past. That makes perfect sense. Like and um it's just detail like that that they really kind of shoved into the movie, uh really helped make it. That's that's uh yeah, no that, that is absolutely uh that's one of the things I really like about the movie is is the attention to detail. Um you know, like I said, there's there's things about the movie I didn't love, but there's the things that I do like are just how how many different things they try to get across in every frame. There's so much happening, and there's so much uh, there's so much thought put into what they're trying to do to build this world, and and it really works in in a lot of different ways. Um, and that's actually a really good uh, setup for my next puzzle piece. Um, which this one's, uh, possibly a bit of a stretch, but, uh, it, it has to do with the, uh, like the future and the future being portrayed on film. And I feel like the worry, it's called worry free. Is that right? The place where they, they live right. and work. Yeah. I feel like if you were to, um, zoom in really far in the Blade Runner world and actually see sure. how people are living um, they'd probably, the majority of people are probably living in something resembling worry-free. Um, and I think that that kind of mix of dystopian and utopian, although it's not really utopian, it's just people think it is, uh, at the same time, I, I think yeah. that that is a very Blade Runner-esque, uh, concept. You touch on the, con- yeah, you touch on the concept of dystopia and my next puzzle piece would actually be, um, a, dy- a dystopian movie from, about 11 years ago uh the clive owen vehicle children of men um, yeah which was a much darker version of this movie and it didn't have as much obviously it wasn't as as whimsical and it didn't have um obviously the stakes were much much higher in that movie because the human race was coming to an end uh, and uh, we never really find out why. I think the, it comes from a, a similar book where um, the source material comes from a book where you actually never find out why it's happening. It's just, right. you know, take it. This is what the setting of the movie is. These are the circumstances, and this is what's happening. And oh, in, that's in much the same, yeah. And in much the same way, you know, Sorry to Bother You does that. They say they drop you into a world that's not that different than the one that we're in right now. And they just basically say, "Hey, you know, this is uh, this this is the, the the world as it is. So come to grips with it." Yeah. What's funny <laughs> is, um, I think, and you have to double check me on this, Dave, but I think in Children of Men, the twenty year old kid who is the youngest person alive, and but who who who's, gets assassinated, and that's like a huge upheaval moment in that movie. They say he was born in the year twenty eighteen. Which is really now. so, yeah. So <laughs> that uh, 
I don't know. Well, that's that, that's precious. That's often. Um, <laughs> that's uh, yeah, no, but definitely between Children of Men and uh, and and Blade Runner, I mean, definitely paints a pretty bleak future uh, and, a, and a good starting point for the events of this this movie to go towards. And uh, I, I think they're also both very um, you know uh, influential movies, so it makes a lot of sense. Um, that's actually my last puzzle piece. Did you have any others? I have one more. Okay. Okay. So you don't have any more. No. You're done. Yeah. Okay. So my last puzzle piece is again, uh, you wouldn't have me on this show if I didn't break the rules every now and then and, and kind of, uh, twist up the format. And my next one, my next puzzle piece is actually a TV show. And, um, similarly to, if you've been following some of the press coming out of this movie, uh, sorry to bother you. Boots Riley has been making a point of saying that um, uh, foreign, uh, I guess, theaters, right? Theater companies, foreign theater companies around the world are not picking up this movie despite it being a critical and a commercial success. It's been successful. It hasn't, it's not like, you know, a billion dollar movie or anything, but it's doing fine. And yeah. um, the reason he's saying that he's saying that the reason that he's being given is that most um for foreign film but most most foreign markets say that they can't sell tickets to movies with only black with mostly black people in them um which i mean i think he's being lied to a lot there i, I think that i mean th- there's got to be some element of that sure but i think that more I would guess that more likely at the core of this, at the core of the, that problem is that this movie is supremely nihilistic in a way that I, and, and sort of galvanizing in a way that I am shocked that people, that, that the people in charge have allowed it to come out. Right. It's right. the kind of movie that you can picture the powers that be not wanting people to actually see. Uh, it is, a, a direct action kind of movie. It is a movie that advocates for you. It, it dares you to get up and go do something. And um, about the conditions of the world, about you know the, the uh, political oppression, about y- your own oppression in your country, about uh, it, whatever it is that 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 lights up your you know that 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 lights up your light of of, of direct action. In that way. There was a TV show that I was shocked was on primetime for, I think, 10 years that was one of the most nihilistic shows I'd ever seen. The overwhelming message behind every episode, until maybe the last couple seasons when it got very schmaltzy, but the first, I would say, six or seven seasons was just dark hopelessness, meaninglessness. Why are you allowing your life to be like this? Your life is just like these people's. These people's life is terrible. Nothing matters. The The Office. The Office was a TV show <laughs> that I, upon rewatching it recently, am shocked that they let it on the air. I could not believe that they let that show on the air. And I think a lot of people remember the goofy, silly, funny parts of The Office, but they don't remember the truly abject horror parts of The Office that were basically telling you that everything you're participating in in the society is a joke and yeah, ridiculous. It's and all an, just a big a, joke. It's everything. An artifice and yeah. a construct. It's all <laughs> bullshit. And, and really showing you, like, I'll never forget, there's a part in the office where Pam, 
the you know the one of the main characters Pam uh, is put in charge of I guess office administration and part of her job is that she has to find ways to cut costs and one of the things that she cuts is the cleaning crew on certain days and uh, so the the office becomes trashy and they try to make a game a chore wheel game out of it and these people are so you know they're just the typical like dissociated unengaged office workers and they're not into a game that's a chore wheel so she has to spice it up with fun things and eventually the game becomes only fun things and they forget to clean up the office (laughs) and they close out the opening scene and it's them like basically cheering and chanting in the conference room and the uh the camera kind of zooms out of the conference room out into like the the office shared area uh, that is just covered in trash and like a rat runs through uh, it. <laughs> it's just like it's such like abject horror and you just <laughs> you realize you're too busy laughing to think about like how horrible it all is and it's and in that way this this movie um sorry to bother you absolutely reminded me of uh of the office that's great. can't believe can't believe that it, upon rewatching The Office, I cannot believe that it was allowed to be on television for so long. <laughs> and yeah. I can't believe that we're so inured, that we're so like, uh, we're so anesthetized that none of us like that us watching it didn't make us get up collectively as as people and say, "What the fuck are we doing? Everything is broken. Everything is bullshit." <laughs> well, start like like taking to the streets and rioting. Maybe in a little small way that has helped lead to the progressive movement of the last couple of years. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> well, that brings us to the uh, finished puzzle. Um, so let me run down the list of all the puzzle pieces we just discussed. And that includes uh, Charlie Kaufman films, uh, which also includes Michelle Gondry and Spike Jones. Um, also, They Live, Michael Clayton. Uh, Office Space, Idiocracy, Eyes Wide Shut, Dope, Children of Men, Blade Runner, and The Office. Um, So overall, how did you like this movie? I love this movie. And I know that you're going to go in a different direction. um, or More of a down the road, down the middle of the road. It's just... I love the message of the movie. Mm Mm-hmm. I love the novelty of the um, of the execution. I'm not trying to say that this is like a uh, this guy. As far as I know, he's a first time filmmaker. He's not. Yes. I mean, he, he he's not. Um, you can you can clearly tell that what what he lacks in experience, he makes up with uh, sort of having that that unteachable auteur eye, where he knows what it is that he wants to see. And uh, I mean, I think some shots. And some, there are some parts that drag. There are some shots that that um, that didn't hit the mark. And then there are also there's also some writing bits that didn't make sense. Uh, the whole thing where the the girlfriend sort of like it, the in, the moments of infidelity that never get revisited <laughs> during sure. the course of the movie. That's yeah. a little weird. But like I, I mean, yeah, sure. If you want to nitpick, you can nitpick this movie. But I thought this was a great movie with a great message and one that people should be paying more attention to. And, um, you know, if there's anything that we've seen recently this year, like I said before, with the wildcat strikes across the country, um, you know, you're not allowed to strike, right? 
I mean, like you specifically can't because you work at your family business. <laughs> it would be a disaster. I'd but get yelled at. <laughs> you get yelled at. But like, like in the overwhelming majority of um, the states in in the union, you uh, you have what's called a right to work, which is basically a right not to collectively bargain, and um, that that means that if you if if corporations, especially larger corporations, even sniff the idea of a union being passed around, they'll just shut the location down and then open it back up a year later with a completely, you know, new group of um new group of workers. And they'll be well within their rights because they've the corporations have worked so hard to ensure that these right to work laws are the laws of the land. So when there's the occasion that that work stoppages can happen, they work. They are absolutely effective. Um, when there's not some legislation preventing them or when it's public sector employees who have maybe uh, a little bit better standing to be able to execute them, um, the, uh, you know, like the teachers in West Virginia, the teachers in Kansas, they, uh, th- there's nothing more effective, honestly, than, than a strike. A strike will bring the company to its knees. Right. And we see it in this movie. And it's it's a, such a huge part of our... Um, of our American history, the reason that we got weekends was through strikes. Before that, weekends didn't exist. They were just two more work days. Yeah. Um, the the reason that we got overtime, the reason that we got so many of these things. For, and yeah, I know that unions are overwhelmingly corrupt. But, you know, they're corrupt on such small scales compared to the amount of, of value that's extracted from your hour of labor versus what you actually get paid during that hour. Yeah. And it, I... I I love the message of this movie in that respect because it's not being talked about outside of progressive political circles these days. It hasn't been for for decades. For since since the Reagan era, it, this has been a country where it's grind your ass off, and that's like the virtue. Yo, I'm on the grind, like grinding yourself into a fucking nub. That's the that's the <laughs> thing that gets rewarded. I'm on the grind. You know what's yeah. like left after a grind? Just like a fucking shitty. I don't know, a, a jizz stain or something. <laughs> Eric Nice from The Grind. Remember him? Kind of. Yo, what's up? It's Eric from The Grind. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I just I, lost all of our all of our <laughs> listeners under 35. I just lost them. Um, I, I, the funny thing and the reason why it's hard for me to review this movie is because I agree with like everything you were just saying. All all the positives about this movie, I absolutely agree with. I just kind of wish that Boots Riley had made a couple of features before he made this movie, uh, because I just find it hard to ignore how difficult it is for all those solid ideas and um, all the good things. I don't feel like they combine into a movie that really do you feel like the movie was maybe like half baked like like it was like wasn't fully realized it's clearly a first time filmmakers film um some of the like the worst parts of it i I, i've said this before but i felt like something you would see in like a 48 hour film or something you know um just very just like kind of corny-ish first time filmmaker thing um things that needed some more uh, some more time to, to really kind of drive it home. Um, but that being said, I, I definitely liked the movie. 
Um, I, I did not dislike it. I definitely liked it and I appreciate it for the ideas that it's trying to put forward. I appreciate it for attempting a lot of uh, difficult things to really put in film. I mean, it, it's not a, uh, not an easy movie to make, especially for a first time filmmaker. And so I definitely don't want to come down too hard on it because I definitely did enjoy it. Um, I just didn't love it as much as I know you did and a lot of other uh, critics seem to. Um, I will say that if I if I was disappointed in, in, in anything of the movie that it, I, I think that it didn't deliver on was the um, the 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 trailer promised a, a a movie that had a much more that 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 had a much more realized world that was a uh, it, it promised a lot more visual visually interesting and appealing pieces mm-hmm. to it. But a lot of that Michelle Gondry stuff they used in the trailer, and there wasn't really much, like a lot of the practical effects, a lot of the, um, you know, I, the thing that caught me with the trailer was the uh, the the desk dropping where he would make a phone call, where the main character Cassius would make a phone call and drop into the reality or the existence of the family that he's calling or the person that he's calling, right, right. which I found to be really interesting. It's such a cool idea and a fun. That was a really cool well. idea. Very Michelle I'm Gondry. Like, I'm in. Yeah, and I'm 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 down for a whole movie like that. Yeah. But the five minute trailer was pretty much all of those things yeah, that were yeah. in the movie. It, Outside it also, of that, it was a pretty straightforward set. The set design was 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 compelling, but it wasn't like genre bending or whatever. It wasn't like it wasn't crazy like that. There were some interesting pieces, interesting parts, the you know surrealism, the the magical realism, and all that. But again, if you saw the trailer, you pretty much saw all those parts. Right, right. It also, I felt, was lacking in the comedy, um, which it doesn't necessarily need. You know, it's definitely trying to do bigger things than comedy, but the trailer seemed to make it out to be a comedy. And it didn't, I didn't think it was really that funny overall, you know. Well, I'll tell you one thing. It's funny you say that because I think one of the best, I think I think that this wasn't a coming out party. But maybe more people now know about Lakeith Stanfield, and that's awesome because he's oh yeah, absolutely. He's a national treasure. He's incredible. Yeah. Um. But what I did find funny was that the the part that we, that he's best known for, I think, in Atlanta, is um Darius, mm-hmm. uh, and you compare Darius that character who he plays, uh, who is the sort of quintessential best friend who gets the occasional bottle episode here and there where he we get to learn more about him. Um, versus Cassius. Darius is filled with unspoken context. Every time he walks into the room, there are all these stories behind him that trail behind him. And everything he says is informed by all this, the magic of that character of like, the, the you know, he is the oldest soul of all of those characters. And also he's sort of a, also like kind of at the same time a neophyte, like a baby living in a world of people who are, um, you know, much less innocent than he is. And right. he has these stories and he has this rich history. He's from Nigeria. He has like this, this whole, like a story about everything and, and his actions are everything that he does is sort of like an enigma and he's so deep and crunchy. And yeah, you know, that's, that's the, the, the brilliance of, um of Donald Glover, right. Who creates that character and brings sure. it to life. And then, and then uh, Lakeith Stanfield acts it out. And then Cassius was very much sort of like t- 
Tabula Rasa. He was just like an empty. He was a, he was a stand-in for us. Right, right. He was an everyman. He didn't bring a lot of context. He had some funny quips, and you realize that he's kind of an original thinker, but he's mostly just a stand-in leading man in yeah. this in this movie. There's nothing that's, I mean, apart from his salesmanship skills, which if you ever take like screenwriting 101, they'll always tell you like your main character always has to be good at their job. Like that's the one thing you have to do to make the, yeah. It's weird. It's a dumb like old school thing, but your main character has to be good at their job. And in this case, Lakeith Stanfield is you know he excels at the job that he's doing. But other than that, he's really just an everyman, and he put in a situation where you're supposed to be able to take yourself, whether you're Puerto Rican, whether you're Jewish, whether you're white, whatever, and put yourself inside of him and be like, huh, what would I do in that situation? And for that, these two that that shows the difference, right? Because what you're talking about, this first-time writer, this first-time filmmaker, Boots Riley, who definitely does not yet have the breadth of experience that a Donald Glover has. And also, Donald Glover is just goddamn talented as the world. But Sure. Um, I think that, that play, you see like the same actor, the same incredibly talented actor, play that out differently. Where he's like, okay, I'm not being given much with this character. My job is sort of to react to the world around me. Yeah. And, and sorry to bother you. As opposed to... I say overwhelmingly in Atlanta, people are forced to react to Darius. Right. Darius is the agent that the, the, the agent of change in a scene. He's the guy that comes in and shoots a dog, uh, you know, shoots a, a, a target <laughs> practice picture of a dog and starts a fight because the redneck <laughs> is shooting a black guy. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, I thought I thought that that sort of distills what you're talking about a little bit. You know, just a just a quick aside, and then we'll we'll wrap this uh, discussion up. But you just talking about that uh, that screenwriting thing about um, always make sure your main character is good at their job. That actually just made me enjoy my favorite movie of all time adaptation even a little bit more um, because of how bad <laughs> Charlie Kaufman is at writing. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that Wait, is that where it like came that. from? Is that where I got that from? No, was it, that, that's not was a it line Brian in there. Cox's character who said no, that? The, no, that's okay. not one of his bits of advice. In the although he does say, "And God help you if you use voiceover," you know, during yeah. voiceover. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then, not to go down an adaptation hole, but uh-huh. then that's the that's the last moment of um a voiceover oh, yeah. for the rest of the movie, right? The yeah, movie, yeah, the, until the very the, end. No more... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> amazing so fucking amazing all right well um Um, i will say you know what's funny though how about this adaptation as a um adaptation as a puzzle but one final puzzle piece and here's why adaptation was probably the first meta conscious aware of itself movie to come out um where it knew what it was doing and it, it pulled that mid second act shift where it turned into a different movie and it knew that it was doing it and it basically said it out loud how about this? Sorry to bother you. The title is meta and aware of itself. It is exi- it is choosing to bother you because what it's doing is it's trying to break break up your complacency in the you know the life that you lead in the capitalist society that you exist in. It's absolutely not sorry to bother you, and that's the per- that's the hidden meta meaning of the title. I love it. That's that that's that Charlie Kaufman. Uh... Inspiration right there. <laughs> well, right on. Let's uh, let's wrap this up. Q, do you got any uh, plugs you want to do? Oh, no. I got nothing. 
got nothing. I'm involved in I'm involved in nothing. I'm accomplishing nothing. <laughs> well, listen to Bird Road where you'll get uh the rest of this conversation uh which bits and pieces may have been cut out of the piecing it together. You better fucking parts. not. Oh, I'll kill you. And if you think I'm if you think I'm <laughs> I'm going to give you the I have final told, edit. I have I'm going to give you the final edit, and it goes up. You know what? I don't even have to give it to you. I already own the keys to your feed. I can put it up however I fucking want. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Fuck around and find out. Fuck around and find out. And all points west. 